Well, good morning. If you would turn your Bible to John chapter 8. We're going to complete chapter 8 this morning, looking at verses 48 to 59. Thank you, Adam, orchestra and choir, for leading us, reminding us it is only Jesus. He is the Son of God. There is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And we are mindful of that every Sunday of the year. We're certainly mindful of that during Advent season, my favorite time of the year. And I know for you, many of you, it is the case as well. And I pray that you will have a very joyful and fruitful Advent season as we contemplate the significance of Christ first appearing. Well, we're going to be looking at 48 to 59, but to get at the central promise of this passage, if you will look at verse 51 with me, and then we will proceed through the text together. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Amen. Let's pray. Father, what a glorious promise because it is natural to us in our fallen state to fear death. But we came, we, we behold, and we, we, we recognize this morning that the Son of God came to put death to death. And we thank you, Lord, that he has done that for us. And we pray today as we consider not only the promises of this text, but the professions that Jesus makes of himself, we pray that it would strengthen our faith in him and that it would grow our affection for him and it would humble us. And we pray, Lord, that your spirit would move during the preaching of this word and we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Maximilian Colby was 45 years old in 1939 when the Nazis invaded his homeland of, of Poland. After that, he began an underground newspaper to keep his fellow countrymen just aware of what the Nazis' plans were and what they were doing. Well, by 1941, the Nazis had learned about what Maximilian Kolbe was doing, and they put his name on the Gestapo list. Well, Max knew that to flee, seek to flee, it would, would actually cause harm to his family and his loved ones. And so he didn't. He, he did not flee. And in February 15th of 1941, he was sitting at his desk in his home when the Nazis pulled up and uh, he gave himself up and they placed him in the infamous Auschwitz. At Auschwitz, five chimneys burned 24 hours a day. 8,000 prisoners could be cremated every 24 hours in Auschwitz. Well, the Nazis ran a, a very tight ship, and so it was very rare that anyone ever escaped. But if anyone did escape Auschwitz, they would capture him, they would torture him, and then they would cremate him. Every once in a while, someone would escape and they wouldn't find him. So what they would do is they would take 10 
of his or her bunker mates, they would line them up and they would arbitrarily take 10 and then they would torture them and then place them in the starvation bunker. Uh, You didn't want that. And in July of that year, when Maximilian Colby had been there a couple of months, a man escaped and they couldn't find him. And so they came to bunker 14, Max's bunker, and they lined up all the, the prisoners and they arbitrarily chose 10 of this escapee's bunker mates to be placed in the starvation bunker. Well, the man next to him was chosen. And he fell to his knees and he began to cry out, what will happen to my family? They need me. And at that moment, Maximilian Kobe stepped in front of the man and he said, take me instead. Well, the commandant, Fritz, decided to take Maximilian instead of that man. And Maximilian Kolbe died in his place. This is the story of the first advent. What theologians call the son of God's humiliation, his state of humiliation where um, he was born and that in a low condition. He was made under the law. He underwent the miseries of this life the wrath of God, the cursed death of the cross, and was buried under the power of death for a time. That is Christ's humiliation. When we, under the sentence of death, could not help ourselves, like that man in that bunker, Christ, the Son of God, stepped forward and said, take me instead. This is the promise of Christmas. And this is the promise of our text, the central promise, as I just read, verse 51. Truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Jesus is promising to deliver those who keep his word from death. He had already promised deliverance when he says, when the Son of Man sets you free, that's verse 36, you will be free Indeed. But the self-righteous people were offended. They were offended by Jesus' words because they had never been enslaved to anyone. Their father was Abraham. They were trusting in their lineage. They were trusting in the fact that they were from the offspring of Abraham. And Jesus responded to them, not in a seeker way. He said, actually, your father is the devil because you have all the traits of the devil. In particular, he was a murderer, he is a murderer, and he is a liar. And they were both. And we see both in our passage today. The lie begins in verse 48. Notice with me, the Jews answered him, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan? That was a racial uh, epitaph. They They knew he wasn't a Samaritan. The Samaritans were hated by the Jews. He doesn't even respond to that. And have a demon. So to be called a Samaritan would have been the worst thing you could have been called. Because they were despised, 
Jesus doesn't refer to that, but notice, you have a demon. Um, Jesus, ironically, came to deliver us from the demons. He came to deliver us from the devil. He would come, he came to crush the serpent's head. But in order to do that would require his obedience to the Father. And there's a real emphasis here in this passage on his obedience to the Father. Indeed, the first point of our passage today, because Jesus obeys the Father, believers have hope in Jesus' promise to overcome death. Because Jesus obeys the Father, believers have hope in Jesus' promise to overcome death. Look with me in verse 49. Jesus responds to them. Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father. Now, don't look past that. He honors the father. It's easy just to gloss over that. But the fact that he came to honor the father in his humanity is your hope. Why? Because you don't honor the father. There's not a single person here that completely honors the Father any day of our life. And in our natural state, we never honor the Father. Jesus came to honor the Father, yes, for God's glory, the Father's glory, but for us and our salvation. I honor the Father and you dishonor me. They were dishonoring the one who came to live as our substitute. Of course, Jesus honored the Father because he loved the Father. He loves the Father, not for his own glory. But, but Jesus adds here, verse 50, yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. And so Jesus does not live for his own glory, but he adds that the Father gives glory to the Son. And this is for the saving benefit of every believer here. Later in John 17, the night before the cross, Jesus will pray to the Father in what they call the high priestly prayer. And in John 17, 22, the, he prays to the Father, the glory that you have given me, I have given them. Indeed, Christmas, Advent, signals that the Father sends his Son to share with us the glory and the fullness of the Godhead. That's what Jesus or John meant when he wrote in John 1:16, of his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. And in this humiliation of the Son during the first advent, God in a very countercultural way will glorify the son. It begins at his birth, a very humble birth, but he was heralded by the angels. He was honored by the magi. And at his baptism, God the father, now think about the the son of God being baptized. He wasn't being baptized because he was a sinner. He was being baptized because he came to identify with sinners and ultimately our sin would be imputed to him on the cross. But then, in a countercultural way, God brought honor to the Son when He said, This is my well pleasing Son. This is the Son by whom I am well pleased. And then, upon 
his victory over sin, death, and the devil through the most shameful way to die, a Roman cross, God would exalt the son to his right hand. And then in the final judgment, in the second advent that we will celebrate for all eternity, first advent is just stage one, correct? But at that second advent, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess Christ Jesus, the Lord. And throughout all eternity, he shall be honored by the redeemed as the second, or Song of Solomon 5, 5 says, as the fairest of 10,000. Of course, the redeemed are those who receive by faith his promise. And we see this promise in verse 51. Truly, truly, I say to you, verily, verily, amen, amen. When he says this, he's making a very important point. Take note of the point he's making. Don't be indifferent to this. Ultimate reality resides in what he says. If anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. I mean, what a glorious, what a hopeful promise. But I want you to note there's a condition to it. It's in, found in this little word, if. If anyone keeps my word. Of course, Jesus isn't referring here to works. If works could get us into heaven, the cross was unnecessary. In fact, the, the cross would have been the most vile thing in the history of the world that God could have done to the Son. So it's not referring to works here. Uh, the whole book of John is intended to teach us that it's by faith. And yet faith works. Faith always bears fruit. And so Jesus says, if anyone keeps my word, beginning with faith. Obedience is the fruit of our faith. If there's no fruit, there is no faith. And notice this condition applies to anyone. Don't overlook that word. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, anyone, no one is excluded because they're too sinful and no one is included because they're so good. That's a very hopeful promise to many of us and for some of us, it's a warning. It's a warning. No one is excluded because they're too sinful or their past is too sin-stained. But no one is included because God is so impressed with your merits. Um, this is a call to two kinds of lost people. There, there are two ways of being lost. At the heart, it's the same way, but expressed in two different ways. You can be lost by being self-righteous. Or you can be lost by being overtly sinful. Either way, you're separated from the Father. The self-righteous is as sinful as the, as the overtly sinful person. It's just that it's covered up by fool's gold, fake gold. The sinner at least is aware that he or she is messed up. But there's two ways of being lost. We've already seen it in the Gospel of John. John chapter 3, 
We see the self-righteous is lost. The most religious man in the world, Nicodemus, comes to Jesus, and Jesus says to him, you must be born again. And then he goes to the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, John chapter 4, and what does he say to her? Surely she is too sinful. Surely her past is too grievous to be saved. But he says, whoever drinks of the water that I will give will never thirst again. Now, the elephant in the room, Jesus has just promised us that if we will keep his word by faith, it's the obedience of faith, he will never see death. The elephant in the room is why do we still have funerals? Why do we still have funerals if Jesus is promising here that if you will keep his word by faith, you will never see death? Well, the answer to that question is that there's far more to death than what you see. Death for the believer is analogous to envision an iceberg. The the most dangerous part of the iceberg isn't what you see above the surface. That's not what sinks ships. The most dangerous part of an iceberg, in fact, the root word for berg is mountain. It's really an ice mountain. The most dangerous part of an ice mountain, an iceberg, is not what you see sticking out in the ocean, but it's the mountain below the surface. And so what's sticking out, the visible part of death is physical death, but it's not the most dangerous part. It grieves us. It certainly grieves us. Death is grievous. Physical death is the separation of the body from the soul. That's like the iceberg that's sticking out of the ocean. But that's not the dangerous part. The most dangerous part of this iceberg is what you don't see. There's two other parts to death that are far more dangerous than physical death. The second part of death that's really dangerous is spiritual death. We're born in a state of spiritual death where the soul is separated from God because of guilt and because of depravity that we inherited from Adam. Paul describes it this way. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air. Spiritual death. That's that part of the death iceberg that you don't see But it's far more dangerous than physical death, the part that you do see. And then there's a third part of death. Physical death, separation of the soul from the body. Spiritual death, separation of the soul from God. And eternal death, or what John describes as the second death. The separation of the body and the soul from God for all eternity. So, Jesus promises, those who keep my word will never see death. How does this work? Well, Jesus will go on six months later. He's six months out from the cross. And he would suffer the judgment of the curse of death for us as our substitute. As he steps forward and says, take me instead And then he will rise from the dead. And in overcoming death by his resurrection, 
all three parts of the death iceberg will be put to death for those who believe. And that's why Paul will write in 2 Timothy 1, verse 10, Jesus abolished death. It's as if it's already happened. Of course, we still see, we still experience the tip of the iceberg, physical death. Many of us went to uh, Greg Key's father's funeral um, last week or two weeks ago. It was a grievous thing, but it was a time of rejoicing. Why? Because the two most dangerous parts of the iceberg had been dealt with for Greg's dad. Spiritual death and eternal death because of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And one day in the resurrection, Paul will write 1 Corinthians 15, 26, even physical death will be destroyed. And John will write in Revelation 21, death will be no more. That's what Jesus was referring to. It's what he referred to back in John 5. Whoever hears my word, verse 24, and believes him who sent me has eternal life. That is, spiritual death has been addressed. Eternal death has been addressed. He will not be condemned. He has crossed over. She has crossed over from death to life. That's the promise he gives us here. But these self-righteous Jews had no understanding of what he's saying. Notice in verse 52, it's very tragic. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. And yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died? And the prophets died. Are you greater than the prophets? Who do you make yourself out to be? Who do you think you are? It reminds me of what the Samaritan woman said to him. Are you greater than Jacob? The inference is yes. He's greater than Abraham. He's the fulfillment of the promise made to Abraham. He's greater than the prophets. He is the one in whom the prophets point to who would come and reveal the will of God for us and to us for our salvation. Indeed, this is ironic language. But notice in verse 54, Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. Incidentally, Jesus is coming as our substitute and he does not glorify himself or his glory is nothing. Remember, our natural tendency is to glorify ourselves. And he's coming to reverse the curse on our sin. And so he comes and he does not come to glorify himself or his glory is nothing. Indeed, that's why we need a triune God. A, a, a oneness kind of God where there's no plurality in the Godhead. This would be utter vanity. But there is a, in the Godhead, this this reciprocity where the father is glorifying the son the son is glorifying the father the spirit is glorifying the father and the son he says it is my father who glorifies me of whom you say he is our God so unlike the Jews 
who glorified themselves by creating this man, these man-made rules that they could obey. Jesus did not need to glorify himself because it would be the Father who would glorify him. In fact, I think he's hinting here at the ultimate way the Father would glorify him in the resurrection. In fact, in John 12, 12 verse 23, he will say, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. That's how he would glorify the Son. Notice verse 55. But you have not known him. Now think about these. He's speaking to the most religious people in the world. What courage, what conviction. In, in, in a day when pastors are afraid to speak hard truths because they want the people to come back next week. He's telling the most religious people in the world, you don't know God. I want to have that kind of courage. I want to have that kind of conviction. But he says, I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. Remember, they have the traits of the evil one who is a liar. But I do know him, and notice, I keep his, his word. And so tradition had long supplanted the Tanakh for the Jews. Now again, what is the Tanakh? It's what we call the Old Testament. They call it the Tanakh. T-N-K, the Torah, the Nevim, and the Kethivim, the law, the prophets, and the writings. But their man-made traditions had long supplanted the authority of the Old Testament. The Old Testament, the Tanakh, is rooted in grace and in the hope of the coming Messiah, who would be the fulfillment of the prophets, the priests, and the kings, and the sacrificial system. But their tradition was rooted in self-help. It was rooted in, in human merit. I just finished an autobiography on Mal, by Malcolm X. And in his understanding, if your good outweighs your bad, his God, Allah, would, would allow him to come into paradise. That's man-made religion. That's where these Jews were. And it betrayed they didn't know the Father. Because the Father's character is infinite holiness and righteousness. Which means his standard is infinite holiness and righteousness. But Jesus knew the Father as the faithful God-man. And notice he also obeyed him. Don't look over that. Verse 55, and I keep his word. He keeps his word as our substitute because you and I don't. We need a righteousness that will stand before God the Father. <clears throat> he obeys him as our substitute and we have as a result the hope of the promise that he will overcome death for us. But that brings us to the second point. Because Jesus obeys the Father, we have that hope. But also because Jesus is equal to the Father, believers have the hope in Jesus' promise to overcome death. Look with me in verse 56. <clears throat> Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Now what does this mean here? 
Abraham had been dead for 1,850 years. So what does he mean that Abraham rejoiced to see my day? He saw it and was glad. Abraham believed in a coming redeemer, the seed of the woman who would come through his offspring. That's what Jesus is referring to. It could be referring to various events, like when Abraham was called to lay his son on the altar and, and his son asked, Father, where's the lamb? And he says, God will provide himself in the lamb. And, and then a, a ram was provided in the thicket that kind of pointed to the one who would come. But you know what this also means? This teaches us how they were saved in the Old Testament. They weren't saved by keeping the law. If you could keep the law and be saved, then the cross was unnecessary. They were saved in the Old Testament by rejoicing to see the day of the coming Messiah. They looked forward to the one who would come, who would redeem them from the guilt and the power and the penalty of sin. That's how they were saved. These Jews had no understanding of that because they had turned the Old Testament into a ladder to ascend, to earn favor with God. Well, notice in verse 57, so the Jews said to him, you're not yet 50 years old. Jesus was 32, 33 years old perhaps. And have you seen Abraham? I think they're being sarcastic because they don't have the eyes of faith. In one of the most remarkable verses in all the scripture, Jesus said to them, verily, verily, truly, truly, amen, amen, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. The great I am. We've already seen uh, that Jesus says, I am the bread of life, John chapter 6. We've already seen him say in John chapter 8, I am the light of the world. We'll, we'll see him later say in chapter 10, I am the door for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. We'll see him say in John 11, I am the resurrection and the life. John chapter 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. John chapter 15, I am the true vine. But nowhere is it more explicit than right here in verse 58. Before Abraham was, I am. That's the very language used by Yahweh when Moses asked him at the burning bush, what is your name? He is claiming to be not only eternal here, he is claiming to be the God of the burning bush, the Lord, the covenant God over believing Israel and the nations. Now here's the question. Why is it important that Jesus, the son of God, be God? Couldn't he just been a perfect man to save us? Well, I don't think it can be said any better than what the Heidelberg Catechism says. In catechism question 16, the question is asked, why must he be true God? And here is the wonderful answer. This is important. 
so that by the power of his divinity, he might bear the weight of God's wrath in his humanity and earn for us and restore to us righteousness and life. In other words, there is no way any mere human, even a perfect human, could bear the weight and fully satisfy God's holy wrath. By nature, this wrath is infinite. It's an infinite, that's why hell is eternal. Because his wrath is infinite. So in order to bear it, it was vital that the Savior be divine. Salvation is of the Lord, as Jonah said. But in their self-righteousness, they didn't understand this. They didn't believe him. If you're self-righteous here this morning, you actually believe that God's going to be impressed with the effulgence of your glory in the last day. You won't believe it either. And notice their response, verse 59. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Stoning was the penalty for blasphemy in Leviticus 24 under the law. But what else was forbidden there was a vigilante. And so even if he was guilty here, there had there'd been no uh, trial by a, a just court. And so they pick up some, they are, God is revealing their murderous hearts. By the way, that's just an important point for all of us. If you've got unrepentant sin in your heart, God loves you so much, he will make sure it's exposed daily. And here their murder is exposed, their murderous impulses is exposed by the Son of God. Remember, he told them, your father is the devil and he kills and he lies. We've seen their lies and here we see them trying to kill him. And eventually they would. Six months later, they would turn Jesus over to the Romans to be beaten, uh, mocked, scourged, flogged, tortured, and ultimately crucified. John chapter 19. And if that was the end of the story, there would be no reason for us to be here this morning. Let us eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. We have no hope. But thankfully, it's not the end of the story. John chapter 20, a woman named Mary goes to the tomb and it's empty. He wasn't there. He wasn't there, but that's six months out. For now, Jesus hides himself. Is he scared? Of course not. He came to die. But he came to die in the fullness of time at the feast of Passover. Now was not the hour. And so he hides himself and he went out of the temple. Now, as we close here, maybe you've noticed in chapter 8, there's no commands to obey. There are many preachers that say, well, there's just, this isn't practical. This isn't relevant. Uh, there's no commands to obey. But there are glorious professions of Jesus to behold in this passage. That's more important than any command to obey. And there's also 
hopeful promises that stem from this. Let's just review real quickly. John chapter 8, if you look in verse 12, I am the light of the world. Chapter 8, verse 29, I always do the things that are pleasing to him. How hopeful is that? Because we don't. And when you stand before God one day in the judgment, if you're a believer, he's going to look at you and he's going to say, you always did the things that was pleasing to me because you're hidden in the sun. Notice as well, verse 56, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. And then verse 59, before Abraham was, I am. Glorious professions here. Also hopeful promises. Again, chapter 8, verse 12. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. He's the light that overcomes our darkness. That we see aspects of every day. Verse 31. If you abide in my word, you're truly my disciples. What a a hopeful promise. Verse 32. And you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Verse 51. If anyone keeps my word... He will never see death. So glorious, glorious professions and hopeful promises, but no commands. So what do we do with this as we close out chapter eight? Well, let me offer you four words to close that I think capture the faith response that we should have because the son of God stepped forward and said, take me instead. First of all, Humility. Do you know humility is evident when our personal sin is more atrocious to us than the sins of everyone around us? And that's convicting to, to say, but it's absolutely the case. Humility is evident when our personal sins are more egregious to us than the sins of those around us. The first advent and all that it entails, like we've seen in chapter 8, confronts us with how really messed up we really are. And the fact that we can't do anything about it. That our condition required the humiliation of the Son of God. That should humble us all. You know, pride is a major cause of our problems. It makes us entitled. It makes us demanding. It makes us judgmental. It makes us condemning. It makes you prickly and picky and easily irritated. Maybe you see that sometimes at family gatherings over Thanksgiving. And it makes you a blame shifter. It makes you a blame shifter. It makes it easier for you to complain than to be grateful. But God in Jesus Christ, by no merit of our own, comes to us. And the eternal son of God suffered once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous. That he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, being made alive in the spirit. That should humble us all. And when what Jesus Christ has accomplished for us, humbles us, humbles our exalted hearts. Get this, 
It changes everything. There's no sin you won't repent of. And there's no person you won't repent to. That's the fruit of this gospel taking hold of your heart. Secondly, (coughs) excuse me. Humility produces gratitude. In this Thanksgiving weekend, we are given supreme reason in our passage to be grateful. Because of the first advent, we know that the richest things in our lives are not things that we achieved, but by grace, the things we have received. Received by grace through faith. It means that we now understand that our greatest, most biggest blessings are gifts of love and not something we earned, a paycheck we earned. Gratitude. Third, freedom. That's the promise in this passage. If the sun sets you free, you're free indeed. Um, We are free from the burdens of the law. We're free from the curse of the law. Jesus obeyed in our place. He honored the Father in our place. He glorified the Father in our place as our substitute. It frees us from the paralyzing, paralyzing burden of guilt and regret and shame. Oftentimes it's during the holidays when we are with our family, we're reminded of the regrets and the guilt of missed opportunities and of how we sinned against one another and the shame that comes from that, but shame died on the cross. Shame died on the cross. Why let something dead rule over you? Freedom. And then finally, identity. We no longer have to search for identity, for meaning, For purpose, I was enslaved to this when I was a football player. My identity was based on today's performance alone. What an enslaving way to live. But we have this in Jesus. We are freed from having to be something. From having to prove our worth day in and day out are for longing for something that will allegedly give us importance and prominence. And and because we are now free, and now because we get our identity from Christ, and we no longer get our value from others and how they respond to us, get this, we are freed from bitterness. And I know this in my own heart, Maybe not you, but fantasies of vengeance when I'm mistreated because I have a new identity. All of these traits and more are the fruit of faith, which is the goal of this gospel. Jesus or John is writing that you, that you and I would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing, we have faith in his name. And out of that faith, humility, gratitude, freedom, a new identity. What a glorious gospel we have. As we 
approach our first Advent or this Advent season, our first day of Advent. But also recognize as Adam and the musicians come forward, not everyone has this freedom. Not everyone has a reason to be grateful. Not everyone has a new identity. But you can. Son of God came to set the captives free. If you're a captive to your sin today, here's the good news. You're qualified. You're qualified to be set free. All you have to do is humble yourself, repent of your sin, and trust in the deliverer, the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Won't you come and respond to that message as we stand and sing? Thanks for worshiping with us today. If you felt the Lord leading you to respond today, whether that was to receive Christ for the first time or to take your next step in baptism, or if you have a prayer request, we want to start that conversation with you. Visit lakeviewbaptist.org slash contact to get in touch with one of our pastors. And as always, you can stay connected with us through our social media and website.